Welcome to Give a Heck. I am your host, Dwight Heck, and for much of my life, lived my life in quiet desperation, wondering how I was going to pay the bills, take vacations, save for retirement, and one day wondering if I would get off the hamster wheel of life and have purpose. A life that most of society lives, which takes us to work, then home, then repeat, and pays us hopefully enough just to survive. The harsh truth that most live with more months than money and have no idea how to live life on purpose, not by accident. This ensures the mass majority are living not just financially broke, however emotionally and mentally as well due to financial pressures. In each episode, I will introduce you to thoughts, ideas, and guests that can help you to learn how you too can live life on purpose, not by accident. Good day and welcome to Give a Heck. I am honored and privileged to have a mentor of mine on the show today. His name is Tony Watley. Tony is an entrepreneur, business mentor, best-selling author, podcast host, and speaker. He is best known as the co-founder of LS1 Tech, an online automotive community which grew into the largest of its kind. This website grew to over 300,000 registered members and was later sold for multiple seven figures in only five years. Amazingly, it was just his part-time business. Tony shares his mindset and business strategies within his book, Side Hustle Millionaire. He also teaches entrepreneurs how to start, scale, and sell their businesses within his podcast and consulting brand, 365 Driven. I'd like you all to welcome Mr. Tony Watley. Thanks for coming on, Tony. Hey, Dwight. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm honored to be on here with you, and I've known you for a couple of years now. And, man, I can't wait to bring some value to your future audience and see this thing grow out for you. I appreciate that. Uh, it's Yeah, it's been a couple of years now. I still remember the first time uh, Lisa actually reminded me, the first time that we sat at a lunch table together, and I didn't even realize who you guys were. Um, at the inaugural Arte event in uh, St. Louis the first time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so it's been a while. And, you know, I really got to connect with you this last one in October when I met you guys down at registration. And since joining the 365 Driven Society, it's literally changed my life. This podcast is happening directly because of the society and you and your mentorship um, pushing me to, you know, get off the pot and do it. So um, we're going to start with uh, the first question I got for you is, uh, you know, tell me your origin story and what key things from your childhood to adulthood led you to want to be an entrepreneur? It's a great question. I think that for context, I grew up lower middle class, small town here in Texas, a suburb of Houston. And my parents were both blue collar workers their entire careers. They're both retired now doing well. Dad was a U.S. Marine, served in the Vietnam War. When he got out, he worked in the oil industry here in the Houston area the rest of his career. My mom is a Japanese immigrant, and when she came over, she learned to work in the public school systems as a cafeteria worker. So both of them stayed in their same careers. So I got to see my parents struggle going through hard times and basically teach me the values of hard work. And they were also very big on teaching me that if I wanted to achieve something, or if I wanted to get something in life, I had to go figure that out for myself. 
they weren't going to pay for college or do anything like that because we were just trying to make ends meet. So me becoming an entrepreneur was really just a, a factor of me just trying to figure out how to get things as a kid. So if I wanted a new skateboard or bicycle or video game, and I wasn't going to get any gifts until Christmas, we didn't have allowance and things like that. So me and my sister would figure out ways to make money. And initially that started out as going to the corner store and buying a box of Jolly Ranchers or blow pops or Tootsie Rolls or whatever the fad candy was of those periods of time. And I'd come home like a little drug dealer and put them in little Ziploc bags and then stuff my backpack and I'd go to school and kids would buy them with their lunch money because their parents wouldn't buy them candy. So I was kind of like a candy drug dealer. And I wouldn't call that entrepreneurship. It was really just a way of multiplying your, your income versus your output. So, and the funny thing is I did it as often enough that the guy that was working, it was a stop and go restaurant or a, a corner store. He always came in and he's like, he goes, what are you doing with all this candy? Like, you're not a fat kid. you know." So I was like, I'd, I'd, I'd take it and I sell it at school. And he's like, oh, cool. And he actually thought that was a cool idea. So he actually gave me a discount for buying the whole box because he knew that I was, you know, being an entrepreneur, I guess. Maybe he was one of my early uh, mentors or something like that. But that just led to me knocking on doors and mowing yards and walking, walking dogs and washing cars. And so I was age, you know, 12 years old doing that and running around the neighborhood, knocking on doors and doing that kind of stuff while my friends would laugh at me because I'm mowing somebody else's yard. And but that's how I had the video games and the BMX bikes and the skateboards and the things that I wanted to buy. And that kind of mindset really just taught me to, out of necessity, if I want something, I had to go figure out how to do it. And if that's what we call entrepreneurship now, that kind of just what it became. Yeah, it, it yeah, I resonate so much with you. I've told you that too when we were in Utah. Um, yeah, I was the same way. My dad, you know, if you want stuff, you got to go out and earn it. So, you know, I had a paper boy, I had a couple, I was a paper boy, I had a couple uh, paper routes and I did anything to have that extra money. And, you know, and I smile about the candy story. I was in junior high and I'd have my paper money and I'd go to the local store at lunchtime and I'd buy chips and candy and I'd buy extra things and I'd come back and I'd sell it to people in the classroom. And I only did that for oh, about three months. And then I got called to the office and I was told I couldn't do it anymore. No more candy serious. crack dealer. Yeah, so I wasn't wasn't as uh, successful as you with it, but I did. I'd go and I'd buy myself something at the corner store. I'd buy always extra, and I'd come back and I'd sell it to kids that um, didn't have because you had to have permission to leave school grounds, right? Yep. My parents gave that to me, so yeah, it's kind of kind of funny how that we have that unique uh, connection. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so. I know you were a risk taker and a daredevil growing up. Was that something instilled in you by your parents or other family members, or was it simply in your nature? And does that part of your personality play a significant part in your entrepreneurial journey and the success you have achieved? I think that's definitely something that's part of my own nature. My parents weren't like that other than my dad, you know, being a combat vet, maybe joining the Marines. He probably had a little bit of that into him, but he wasn't into the extreme sports or craziness like that after he got out of the military. And for me, I think it was growing up being a car guy and watching car crashes and crash up derbies and monster truck jam things on TV and like seeing stuntmen and doing all these things on, like, I thought it was really cool. Like it'd be awesome to set yourself on fire and jump off a building and land on this floating thing. Now that'd be super awesome. And that's just how I was, man. I think that was just my, my personality. I was always, 
looking for that adrenaline rush and to do things that are kind of crazy. So, yeah, I think that absolutely that that background and that mindset and that fearlessness definitely helps me as an entrepreneur because I can assess the risks just like a stuntman can. They do all like it looks dangerous as hell when you watch it, but they've done all the risk assessments and they've practiced and they've done things differently. And they've jumped off that building a hundred times before they lit themselves on fire and did it, you know? So they do things methodically and they come up with a result and it's predictable result, but that's what entrepreneurship is, is not being afraid to take those risks. And that's what keeps most people fearful from trying something is they just are so scared to do something that they've never done before. And they just kind of hide and, and they don't do anything. So your parents were pretty supportive of your tenacious, uh, <laughs> radical in some ways, your ability to just take on a risk. And that, that probably helped you a lot too. So would you, would you say your parents were a driver to your entrepreneurial spirit because you've seen them struggle? Or did you have any other mentors outside of your parents, like uncles, aunts, relatives, friends that were business owners that made you strive to want to be an entrepreneur? No, I was actually the very first person in my family on both sides to go to college. And my dad was the first one in his family to own a house that didn't have wheels on it. So, you know, we think about it that way. It's, I didn't have those mentors in my family and we didn't have, didn't have the internet and stuff like this. I grew up in the 1980s, essentially. So for me, it was like, it was, it was really understanding and unlocking some of the things that I had in my mind over the last you know several years was, you know, I used to think that the richest person in my family was my uncle Hollis, you know, late uncle Hollis, because he had a double wide trailer that had built a facade on the front of that made it look like a house from the road. So he had maybe two or three acres in his yard and that was the biggest yard in our family. And he had a double wide trailer that looked like a house from the street. And we thought he was the rich uncle. So see how perspectives kind of change over time. And when you grow up like that, you don't know any better. You're just in, you're immersed in that world and those belief systems. And you just think that this is the way it is. And, you know, maybe I'll get a steady job and someday I'll have, you know, the, the double wide trailer like uncle Hollis, so I can be successful too. So you know, anybody that's listening to this, they understand that the mindsets you currently have, the things that you believe are really created when you're a child. The society that you surrounded yourself with then and your parents, if your parents were low middle class, guaranteed that they instilled a bunch of lower middle class beliefs into your mind that you've not even yet to challenge because you believe it to be true because that's what you knew. And if you grew up wealthy, you had a different set of ideals and beliefs because you saw something completely different. So you got to understand, you got to start challenging your own beliefs and asking yourself, is this really true? Or why did I think about this? And where did it come from? And, and for me, it was just really a uh, going to school, you know, engineering, getting that degree struggle. It took me seven years because I was working full-time construction, just like my dad did. And I was waiting tables on the weekend and I always felt broke and sleep deprived and stressed and anxiety and just, just, like college was the worst time of my life because of all this working full time outdoors in Texas is not enjoyable. And then going to school at night and sleeping three hours a night is not really healthy. So I did that for seven years. And, and when I get out, the oil industry was paying a whole lot more than the car industry. And I wanted to go work in the automotive industry, but they were literally paying half and you had to go live in Detroit, which is a shithole. So I decided to stay here in the Houston area and make twice as much in the oil industry, but I still had that, 
craving to be involved in the automotive industry. And that's why I started the online communities and started doing things around automotive work. I started working on cars at mechanic shops and stuff. So I just really served for me is I didn't think about making millions of dollars when I started those companies is for me, it was just an outlet. It was a creative outlet that was involved with automotive that I love and it just grew into what it became. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, I know a lot of people are defined by what they go to school for and they get the degree and they feel, you know, that they have to go out and stay in that career. I have a lot of clients, relatives that have gotten, you know, degrees or diplomas and they stick in that industry just because. Um, and I think that's terrible. I myself went through um, a technical college here and got my electronics engineering uh, diploma. It's a collapsed time frame. It took me two years. I stayed in that industry very, not very long. And why didn't I? Because I realized how pathetic the pay was. <laughs> and I really, you know, how how can a person be prepared to know that they're going to love that career, even yourself going to and getting your mechanical mechanical engineering, right? Mm-hmm. Um, had you done any forethought prior to that to ensure that that's what you wanted to do? Did you know anybody that did it or was it, what was your drive to pick that as a, as your, as your choice? I think like most, we grew up with the fallacy of you had to go make a hundred thousand dollars. Like if you could make a hundred thousand dollars, you were perceived as successful, right? When you grow up middle-class, even today here in the U S the average household income, which is actually a combined income when you think about it is about $68,000. So you've got two working class adults averaging $68,000 across the United States. So I get it. A hundred thousand dollars salary is still a dream for most of the people here in the country. And you know, my mom, for example, never crossed that figure. So when you think about it that way, they always tell you, if you want to go make a hundred thousand dollars, what do they tell you to go do Dwight? They tell you to go be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer, right? Those three, the top 10 highest salary degreed professions. So I said, okay, I don't like medical. I don't like seeing people in pain and dealing with blood and disease, just not my thing. And a lawyer, maybe I can do that, but I don't really want to do that. It just seems kind of boring to go through all these law books and looking for historical evidence books. I'd actually be very good at lawyer, but it wasn't interesting to me. So I kind of leaned back onto things I love with cars. Okay. Is there anything engineering that has to do with cars? Well, obviously, because engineers design and build cars. So I said, okay, which engineering form does that? Well, it's mechanical. It's anything that's moving or motion or machinery or dynamics, anything that with acceleration, it's all cars. So I was like, cool, then I can actually get a degree so I can better understand cars and all the systems with cars. And that's mechanical engineering. So that's why I chose it. But I didn't know what I was going to do with that degree once I had it. It's just, it was one of those things you had to do as a checkbox item. Yeah. That, and that happens to a lot of us. Like I was always good. I had a mentor that encouraged me to get into electronics because I worked for him with his alarm company and I I did all their high-end card access, their closed-circuit camera stuff. I was in my early 20s and he says, you go back to school and when you, 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 when you graduate, I'll hire you. And I graduated and told me he couldn't afford me. <laughs> oh, gosh. I did. I told him that. I said, Terry, I said, sorry, I know what your top guy and your technical team does. And with the, I already have this knowledge before I went to school. My knowledge for school isn't going to really help me. You know, it's going to help. It's not going to help you. Are you going to pay me what 
my career will pay me. Well, no. I said, well, I already knew what to do before I went back to school. I'm sorry. I thank you for encouraging me to go back to school, right? Because you got to realize school is tough, right? Because there was 185 of us that started that two-year accelerator program and only 18 of us that graduated, mm -hmm. right? 18 of us. And I was one of them. And I was also married the second year of it and had a kid. Mm -hmm. But it's tenacious and it's what I wanted to do. But then I realized after I started doing it, I just... I didn't like it and I was more yeah. focused on I realized I could make more money in the IT industry and in the consulting industry so I pivoted away from it because of money just like you were saying you could make more in the oil industry so I can definitely relate to that but there are so many people today that go to school they say right now at our university here University of Alberta that 68% of people that graduate with a degree don't even do that what they went to school for. Yeah. There's something similar like that in here in yeah. the U.S. There's, I, I think it's about that number of 70% you know, of the people with a degree aren't doing anything related to their degree. That's, and, and they're stuck with all that student loan debt. Yep. And the you know, time and the yeah. four to five years that it takes to get it. It's a total waste. Well, you look at my daughter. She has like 70 some thousand in student loans, graduated. She's a registered nurse now. And doesn't you know is making like fifty or sixty thousand? Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, it's going to take her years to pay it off. Obviously, I help her as much as I can. When she was going to school, she would have needed way more if she if I hadn't helped her. Mm -hmm. I think people aren't prepared properly. How do you think our school system? That's one of my questions I have. I'm going to divert a little bit from the question I put down. How do you think our school system has failed in preparing children? to you know go on to secondary school or to let's say if being an entrepreneur or realize they can be a business person how do you think because it's the same in canada as it is the u.s as a product of the public school system i would say that they fail in several categories for helping people be prepared to become productive adults first of all they don't teach them the financial act you know experience and understanding what their finances are and i know that's what you do the other thing is they condition people to become employees rather than business owners. So when you think about that, it starts out as even at your earliest ages when they're asking you to raise your hand or stand in a line, single file, and can I go to the bathroom? And you're asking for permission to do every single thing. Even in some of the high school teachers were like that, where you got to ask her, raise your hand if you got to go to the bathroom. And some of the teachers I get were like pretty cool. They're like, dude, the pass is over there. If you got to go, just go. Just make sure the pass is there and like go. They would actually treat people like adults, but I would say that's the vast, you know, majority don't. And they teach you things that really don't apply to your future. So, you know, we learn a lot of different topics that really aren't really interesting to the kids and they're not going to apply to their careers. And they also don't teach you about what degrees actually pay well. They don't give you really any clue about that kind of stuff. So they almost like they encourage you to go get a degree because it's a degree rather than getting one as thinking of it as it being like a tool that's going to help you with your career. So, you know, I wish I would have known like, okay, what are the degrees that pay better and how do they match my aptitude and what are my interests and kind of find the intersection of those three things to figure out what I wanted to do versus me having to guess and not know what the starting salaries are. Cause I think that a lot of people would change their majors or not even attend if they were to see the result four years later. So if they were to said, Hey, you that's wanting to go get your psychology degree, love that you want to do that, but realize that 
you're going to spend $50,000 to get that. And when you graduate, you're probably going to be waiting tables at the same restaurant that you were when you started school. So, so if you were to tell somebody that, they'd be like, oh, hell no. Why would I go waste four years of my life to end up right where I am that I can work at a job when I'm age 18 with zero experience? Because that's what I saw. I used to be a restaurant manager while I was in school. And I would hire people with master's degrees in engineering, not engineering, in, in psychology and, and any liberal arts type degrees because they couldn't find a job that paid well enough. And they were literally earning more as a waiter. And I was like, dude, you got a master's degree and you're sitting here waiting tables. Like, did you not think about this before you got your degree? And the answer for most of them was always no. Like, oh, I didn't know it was going to be. I thought there would be jobs. And there's different false promises made. And here we are. And so it's unfortunate because. A lot of this information that they discover later was always there. They just didn't ask or didn't know who to ask, and nobody was really giving them that information. Well, school counselors, and I know it's the same in the U.S. because I have relatives that live down there. They're, the kids went through the same problems. School counselors aren't trained properly. They're usually a teacher that's picked and, and, and labeled as a school counselor. I remember sitting with ours in grade 11, making sure I had the right courses, and still didn't have the right courses had to take some courses anyway to get into the electronics engineering program because especially because it was accelerated i ended up having to and i'm a i'm a science geek i love science i think i told you that in utah and uh so i had to take physics what's called physics 30 here which is high level physics I had to take it again and, and get a higher mark in order to get into the engineering program because you're you know a lot of formula based stuff right but they, they definitely don't prepare people properly i look at and i honestly think universities and colleges are they're they're a business they're not about yeah. students and those art degrees you talk about makes me nauseous i probably have a third of my clients that ended up going to work in the oil patch or they're working at a you know their sales job of some sort because their arts degree means absolutely nothing or they force you if you want to get into medical school i'm not sure if it's the same in the u.s you have to, or law school, you got to have a, another degree, like a political science degree or yep. you got to have a, you got to have undergrad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Before you can get into that program. It's just, it's a giant waste of people's resources, their life, their time. And I'm, you know, I, I, I have a hard well, well, time. Dwight, all those classes, come on now, you got to be able to fund the football team to make the alumni association really proud of your school so they keep donating money see that's why they do it they need the football money man do you know what's really pathetic you want to hear a story i don't know if i told you just on one of the society calls i think i might have our university here which is one of the most prestigious in in canada is still charging even though ever, nobody can go to school everything's online they're still charging them all the fees for their um not union dues what do they call them the lab fees and everything they're charging and yes. park, park, everything right? and for sports and everything you know what it, it, so they had a petition and it, it hit national news and the university said too bad we're still charging it because that's how we pay for our scholarships for our for our football players our hockey Boom. players there it is right i'm serious and they they basically told the told people you don't like it then don't come well, we're not no, coming. When, it's all online. When you when you see the championship level college football coaches earning more than the president of the university, 
it's pretty obvious where the money goes. It, it, but you're right, though. It's so you hit the nail on the head. The last thing I want to mention about schools before I move on, um, you know, I talked about the disconnect. The biggest thing that makes me nauseous about our school system, and it's really become predominant in um, the pandemic. And I've taught about this for years, and I get people that are offended. This might offend some of the listeners. You know, our school system from elementary up is just a giant babysitting service. It's it, it allows kids to be babysat so their parents can go and work. And the pandemic has destroyed families. It's had grandparents, aunt, aunt, uncles, other people watch the kids when the daycares and day homes were closed. And even it's still happening in, in Canada right now because they have limited numbers because of uh, exposure ratios and distancing and all that, yeah. all that stuff. Wouldn't, would you agree that the school system is a giant babysitting daycare system and it's broken? Because really, what does it teach our kids? They don't even teach the multiplication tables anymore in our country. I don't know. I, I think, yeah, I agree partly with that. I think that some people definitely use it as a babysitting service. And I think that it's shameful when you see parents really having these breakdowns and, and complaining about the systems because someone else has to watch their kids now. Because what that really highlights is their level of parenting skills. And I know you've got several kids, so you understand this very well. I've got a son myself. He's almost 21. And yeah, I mean, your kids are your obligation. And, and if you have to work with them at the house, that's kind of like the decision you made when you had kids. So it was your choice. Quit complaining about it and don't rely on the schools to raise your kids because that's really one of the problems we see with young people nowadays is they were raised by the school system rather than being parented properly. Yeah, and, you know, I agree with some of the aspects of people saying a public school or even private school teaches social skills and stuff. But I also know parents that have, I have clients and I have relatives that have homeschooled their kids right from uh, grade school, like kindergarten all the way up to high school. And they just made sure that they were in lots of extracurricular activities and sports and, and they, they have great social skills. Right. Um, but you know, your point that, you have kids and you take care of them and you suck it up. I had that when I got full custody of my kids, I had to pivot. I had to change things. I went from making, um, mid, you know, good six figure income to making 40, 50,000 a year. Cause I couldn't work in the evenings or work very often because mm -hmm. I had five kids relying on me and I just robbed Peter to pay Paul lived off lines yeah. of credits. I did what I had to do mm -hmm. in order to survive because our kids don't ask for, much from us except you know you got to give them some shelter food give them some love give them some proper discipline give them some you know um one of the things that i think is so key that people don't realize for healthy young adults and not everybody agrees with me is manners being yeah. polite being kind teaching your kids from a very young age and mirroring that yourself to everything that you do out in the public eye so mm -hmm. yeah i do I, I hear where you're coming from um, so this one's going to be, I can't, I can't recall exactly when this conversation was, but I remember, I think it was one, one of our society calls. And for those that are listening, um, Tony has a society called the 365 driven society. Um, reach out to me. I'd highly suggest you check it out. We have a society call, uh, um, most Saturdays where we all get together and we talk, you know, we talk about business ideas. We talk about personal things. We encourage one another, we support one another, 
Um, it, it might be the best association that you've ever had in your life. And I would highly suggest you reach out to me, but we can discuss that when you do that, or you can reach out to Tony. Um, so I can't remember when this conversation was, but I'm pretty sure it was at one of the society calls. I brought up the fact that, or somebody brought up, I didn't bring it up, a discussion started. It is not, it is not what you know, it is who you know and what they know that counts. And you agreed, but with a caveat, you said that no matter what someone else knows, if you are not ready to receive the information, what someone else knows does not matter. Can you expand on, on that? Because some people don't get that. I get what you meant. It clicked. Yeah, I guess the, the first part of that, the it's not what you know, it's who you know. And that's that's very important. And, and the thing about it is, I think this, the conversation that was leading up to that, people who are average, people who are mediocre at life, whenever they're presented with a challenge, they always ask, how can I do that? How can I do that? How can I fix this? How, you know, it's always about internal who like they, they try to figure out themselves. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay. That's how I used to be. Highly successful people think differently because they know their skill sets and they're confident in what they're good at. And when they're presented with a challenge, they don't ask, how can I do that? They think about who do I know that can do that? Who can I hire that can do that? Who do I know that can get me to that level quickly or get me past this problem quickly? Because successful people realize that time is important and that a challenge is just a temporary measure that we're trying to get past so that we can move ahead and actually find a more important challenge later. So you're always going to have to be looking for somebody or some assistance to be able to get those things done quickly. Or you could just waste a whole lot of time trying to figure out that challenge yourself and buy books and read and practice. And if you don't really even have any interest in it and you're just trying to get past that one challenge, you just wasted a lot of time where successful people have left you and made laps around you by that point because they've just hired the experts to help them get ahead. So it's not about what you know, it's about who you know when you're a successful thinker. Now, when you talked about the other part of you had to be ready to receive that information, that's the mindset part, okay? Because a lot of times we mentioned it earlier in your, your show here that we hold on to beliefs that we're conditioned with based on our society, our teachers, our mentors, our parents, even our friends, our circle of friends. And when you've got these beliefs, really core beliefs built into your mind, let, let's talk about politics a little bit. Those are belief systems built by your society. Realize that anybody out there that's a hard left or a hard right type political person right now, realize that your political ideology would have been 180 degrees had you just been born in a different state with a different set of parents. So when you start to realize that, you need to go think about what is right rather than what is political. And there's a lot of beliefs even around entrepreneurship, around leadership, around money, all, all these major topics, religion, religion's another good one. Had you been born in a Muslim home in a Muslim country, you'd probably be Muslim and you'd be proud of it and you'd be ready to fight for that. Just like someone that's very Christian, it'd be the exact same scenario for them. And had they switched places, they would have never known. They would have just had a different ideology because when we're young, our brain is like a sponge and we have no basis of comparison for anything. So anything we see our perceived mentors or leaders or the people we admire, the people that we look up to doing things, saying things, behaving certain ways, we adopt those as our own core beliefs because we have no basis to reference them against. So when you think about that, you go, well, shit, what are the things I really believe? And then you kind of go down the rabbit hole and you start asking yourself, 
Why do I believe that? And then you get to the next level and you go, where did this belief come from? And then you get to the bottom of that hole and you go, is this really benefit me and my dreams or my goals or my visions with my life? Does this really align with where I'm going? Or is it something that's holding me back? This is a belief. It's not a fact. It's a belief. So a lot of times people will hold on to these beliefs because that's what it is. It's a belief. And when they're challenged with those beliefs, they go into defense mode and they resist hearing that because they're not ready to hear that. And whenever they have this ego that's built up, they're not afraid. They're afraid of letting their ego fall because then they get proven, you know, air quotes wrong. Well, there's no wrong or right. It's just a belief system and you just have what you have in your mind. So when someone challenges it, if you're a critical thinker, if you're a free thinker, you should always listen with an ear of interest and go, well, let me see, like, I want to challenge myself to see if I can put myself in the same perspective as them. I may not agree with what they're saying, but I'm going to try really hard and do some critical listening and try to put myself in their position from their perspective, understand how they were raised in the society they were growing up in and the parents that they had and, and just see if I can empathize. If I can get to the point where I just empathize and understand why they believe what they believe, and then I can make my own decisions at that point. Now I'm a critical thinker, okay? Now I've obsessed what I've looked at. I've, you know, obsessed at what they've looked at and I can emphasize and I can go, okay, well, which one of these is my core value? Which one of these is going to get me to the goals that I would like to have in life? And therefore I will make a decision based on this. And you'll find that if you can think like that, some of the things you truly believe will change. And that's okay, that's a good thing because we should always be evolving and changing and most people are unwilling to change because they hold on to ego or they hold on to a status or some kind of reputation that they've contrived over years or decades. And they're unwilling to let that go, even though they've changed their mind. And that's what we call self-reliance. You know, Ralph Waldo Emerson's book, Self-Reliance, elaborates this in a great amount of detail. The most powerful, influential people in this world were never afraid to change their minds. It's all the people who say something and then they learn something different, but then they hold that secret because it changes their philosophy. It changes their status. It changes their perceived, you know, ego around who they are. So a free thinker will be like, Hey, you know what? Yesterday, I believe this based on these facts, this experience, this wisdom, and this information. That's what I truly believed. And I was standing on soapboxes and I was telling people, but today I believe this because I've learned this now. And I've experienced this now, or I saw this bit of evidence and now this has changed. So therefore my opinion has changed. So I'm going to boldly tell you my opinion today. That's what self-reliance and being a free thinker is, is having the courage to be able to change your mind. And a lot of people don't have that. Most people don't have that. Yeah. Too many people in society, as you mentioned, or they're worried about their status. They're worried about what people are going to think about them. So, and it's, and the biggest self-limiting belief that happens with people is that, and if they could just learn to let go and not care what the committee of they thinks about society, we'd all be that much more happier. Um, so I know your book, Side Hustle Millionaire, is about the steps required to take your passion for wanting to be an entrepreneur and to start a business. I myself enjoyed how concise and thorough it is and how you explain what is required to start a business all the way to scaling and exiting. My question is, is what would you say out of the things you teach in the book are the most important takeaways that most entrepreneurs do poorly or outright just don't do, and that's why they fail? Wow, that's a good one. I think there's a whole lot of reasons people fail at business, but I think 
the number one is not investing in the right skill sets for themselves. I think a lot of people have a unique talent or a knowledge or a skill that they like to monetize. Let's let's like take, for example, I'll pick on the car guys because I know a lot of them. Let's say that you're one of the best mechanics in town. You're like, man, I'm super good. All the cars I build are fast and everybody wants me to work on their car because I'm super awesome at building cars. Okay. And then you watch your boss driving his brand new F-250 and he's got his brand new Lamborghini out there. And you're like, well, why does that guy get to be my boss? Like I'm the best mechanic in this shop. I can, I could totally run this business. Like, cause I'm the best one here and the ego's talking. Right. And I've seen this countless, this, this story plays itself out many times in the last 20 years I've been watching the industry. So then said mechanic goes, well, you know what? screw this. I'm going to go build my own shop because I'm super awesome. And I'm, I'm tired of working for this guy because he makes all this money. And then they go start their business. And then they're still working on cars and nobody can answer the phone and they don't know how to do the accounting. And then the business dries up and they're not good at marketing. So this starts to fail and people don't really know what's going on over there. And then you get angry customers and then you get behind on your bills and you're having to take in new work to pay the old work you know, bills off. So you just kind of go into this clusterfuck and it collapses on your face, but Hey, you were the best mechanic. What happened? It's because you weren't the best businessman. If you're going to start a business and you're serious about it, you need to go invest in skills and knowledge to make yourself a better business person. Go read some books, go listen to podcasts, go study what good business people are because no matter what skill or knowledge that you're trying to monetize, you need to be equally good at business if you're going to go be a business owner. So don't discredit that. Don't think that your skills, your knowledge alone are going to carry you into a successful business. Take it equally serious. And if you are that mechanic, you need to realize that you're not going to have to be turning wrenches. You're going to, have to be trying to be very hard to get away from working in the service bays and working in the front of the house and actually owning and running a business because that's what your role is at that point. Yeah, it's uh I love that. I use mechanics just as an example when I teach with my clients and stuff. And I talk to them about, you know, Robert Kiyosaki's cash flow quadrant and how so many people on the left side of the quadrant, they're just, they're self-employed just because you're a mechanic, like you're saying, and you go work for yourself, you're still self-employed. Mm -hmm. you, you haven't really gravitated to the right side of the quadrant. You're struggling. You don't understand somebody's paying you like my example people i'll say well a mechanic might charge 130 bucks an hour at a mechanic shop here a mechanics getting 30 if he's lucky the rest goes to overhead by the time it's all said and done some of my business clients are lucky if they're making five bucks an hour off of that yeah. right because of the overhead the leasing costs the, they don't even if they own the building there's huge costs so yeah i appreciate your take on it but that's one thing I was thinking about the book and I was, you know, the book is amazing for those listeners. I'd highly suggest you purchase it or get it on Audible. It can teach you a lot, but literally follow the steps. If you have questions, reach out to Tony, hire him as your mentor. Collapse timeframes, like he mentioned earlier on in this, uh, you know, in our conversation. Hiring mentors and getting help, there's nothing wrong with it. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. It's a sign that you get the fact that somebody's knowledge is worth something and they've spent years to get that knowledge. If they can help you collapse time frames and you do it even a year quicker, it's so worth it. So, mm -hmm. yes, I really appreciate your answer. Um, so you just recently 
held the first 365 driven society advance or pardon me 365 driven society advance event in utah and you posted here in the last couple of days about a key thing recently that you noticed that attendees initially had an issue with however soon embraced and made the experience like no other i'd like you to discuss that a little bit uh, you know i get what the post is but i think a lot of listeners need to understand what our society has done when it comes to technology and disconnection yeah, that's a great one. The, the thing I observed from the event, so for context, the event was in Zion National Park Canyon. It's a canyon, literally the location we rented the venue was in the middle of that canyon. Well, being in a canyon meant that you didn't really have cell phone signal very well, right? It was spotty. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. It just depended on what was going on out there. And people would go on these breaks between the speakers and I'd give them about 10 minutes. And initially they would go grab their phone as soon as the speaking, you know, first speaker would finish, they would grab their phone and start swiping and come to find that the signals just really weren't working those couple of days. We were there very well. And you could see the frustration on their face because they were so addicted to technology. They couldn't wait to like just look and scroll and go on Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever they're doing. And then about halfway through the day after a few speakers, I saw fewer and fewer people even look at their phone. They just kind of left them face down on the desk knowing that it's probably not going to work anyways. And instead of going directly to their electronics, they started having conversations. So they would go outside and they would sit in these beautiful areas with birds chirping and literally chickens walking around and deer walking around and you got the Utah canyons to look at and beautiful property and everybody's like observing and being present and having these amazing conversations with people. And it got to be where I had to even go interrupt the conversation, like, hey guys, come back inside. Like next speaker's coming. Like the conversations were that good, I could tell. So over the course of those two days, and even the third day when we did the extended hike through the Narrows, man, there was no signal out there. Everybody's phone was basically become a camera at that point instead of a, a phone. And dude, it just made a lot more bonding time, a lot more deep conversations, and a lot of people getting to know each other. And that's what it was all about. Because if you're attending these conferences and you're grabbing your phone at the breaks instead of networking and getting to know people, you're missing one of the major draws to actually having an event that's there to go meet people and network and build some lasting friendships. And that's what we saw. Oh yeah, it was, it was amazing. And I had somebody call me out years ago about that. I was at a conference and you know, a bunch of us were, Oh, we got to make a call. We got to, you got to touch base with this client. got to check in with the office or you're checking social media or whatever. And, and a mentor of mine, a friend of mine, he come over to me and he tapped me and I was on the phone. I went, yeah, just a sec. I get off the phone and he go, why'd you come here? Well, same as you to listen to the speakers and learn some stuff. Yeah, but he says the biggest knowledge base you're missing is walking around this room. And he says, I've, I w- stood back and watched. He said over 70% of the people here, and there's, there's probably seven, 800 people, are all on their phones. And he says... The ones that are smart ones is that little group over there, those three, four guys and gals standing there and that group over there. And it was just like, it was like a, a giant mental slap. And it was just, so I got to a point where unless it's desperate, I automatically put my phone in airplane mode so that I don't. And I, I totally agree with you. The only time I needed internet at Zion is so that I could do my commitment to my daily video and that yep. was a challenge you'd have to walk around and try to get a find signal. A signal. <laughs> yeah but you know what it was an amazing event um yeah definitely 
for the listeners, you got to check out 365 Driven Society. Uh, Tony's got so much to offer. Um, I had one more question, but we're coming up in the hour, so I will skip that and basically say, you know, I respect our listeners' time and I respect yours and I appreciate you coming on. Do you have any last closing message you would like to leave the listeners of Give a Heck? Yeah, I would think that the the biggest thing that's going to hold most people back is exactly what we touched on earlier was that people worry too much about what other people think or say about them. And I fell victim to this for several years myself. I had no confidence of getting on stage now that I do that now. Uh, I didn't like being on recordings or in front of the camera. I was really good at taking photos, but didn't like being in front of the camera. So I you know, I had all these issues worrying about what other people are going to say or critics and haters and naysayers. And, and here's the good and the bad news. There are critics and there are haters and there are naysayers and you will find them and you will meet them as soon as you start doing something worth noticing. And the way, the way I phrase that is I want you to go get your haters. I want you to go earn your first haters because until you do, it means you're not doing anything worth noticing. And it's the hard truth is you're just obscure and nobody knows you and they don't, you're not doing anything worth noticing literally because as soon as you do, you will have critics and haters. And in our group that Dwight has mentioned, we actually celebrate those haters. Don't we Dwight? We share the screenshots and we're like, we applaud you. Absolutely. You got your first hater. We're like, Oh, you got your first hater. That's so awesome. Congrats. And then, so you make it a little fun and then you go, okay, this is the way we should have thought my entire life. Why, why didn't I have this mindset my entire life? You know, and that's what it is, because most people will tell you, like, I'm so afraid of failure. Tony, I'm afraid of starting this company because I'm afraid of failure. Tony, I'm I'm afraid of losing all this weight because I'm obese because I am afraid of failing. You're not afraid of failing, guys. If you're listening to this, you're not afraid of failing. We fail all the time. We fail all the time. Sleep a few minutes late, you failed. Eat the wrong meal, you failed. Go to the gym, didn't finish that last rep in your set, you failed. shoelace came untied while you're walking. You failed. We fail all the time, but we don't like dwell on that. We just kind of fix things and we move on or we, we, uh, you know, just adapt. So we're not really afraid of failure, are we? We're really afraid of what people will say about our failure. So it all comes back down to what are they thinking about me or what might they think about me? And you start thinking about worst case scenarios. You know, you're like, well, I'm, I'm kind of ugly or I'm kind of fat or I don't like my voice. And you, you think it's going to get amplified a hundred times and that everybody's going to be talking about that. But what you're going to realize is that you'll have about 1% haters. So out of every hundred people that you're actually doing things that they see what you're doing, you'll have 1% that will be haters or negative critics or passive aggressive assholes will act like they're friends, but they're really just haters too. And that's okay. I understand that's part of the game. And when you start doing things to become noticed and you actually start making an actual impact and we start doing things that people are paying attention to, then you will have those haters. And I look forward to you having those and sharing those with us because that's part of the journey. Yeah, I haven't, uh, I've had people say negative stuff, but nobody really publicly criticized me yet. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I've had some really good DMs though, Mm -hmm. saying how, how my videos have, made their day or they were really yeah. depressed and they really needed to hear it. So I've had some really good positive ones. Have I've had people say negative stuff to my face, but nobody really on the keyboard warrior yet. So, but yeah. I appreciate your insight. Um, so tell us how listeners can reach you. What's the best way to reach you so that, uh, uh, you know, they can 
enjoy the what I've enjoyed, right? Yeah, my website is 365driven.com. And, and from there, you'll find all the links to my social media and everything that I've written and my podcast, which is also the 365 Driven. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks so much for being on Give a Heck. Um, your information's invaluable. I still have, I actually looked down, I have quite a few other questions. I'm going to have to get you to come on again because um, I'm very analytical that way. So I have some questions here that I'm trying to make it so that, you know, I'm a little different than other podcasts, but I also want to make it so that, you know, it's unique that people are hearing things different and not always the same thing from the same people over and over again. And I think you did a fantastic job answering the questions and uh, participating. And I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Dwight. Been fun. You bet. Thanks a lot. Thank you for taking time out of your day and listening to Give a Heck. If you find value, I'd appreciate you sharing with your friends and family so they too can learn how to live life on purpose, not by accident. So you do not miss the next episode. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and please also post a review. I look forward to reading your comments. This has been Dwight Heck. If you want to check out other podcast episodes or today's show notes, please check out my website, giveaheck.com. And until next time, together let us all strive to give a heck.